0: and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. So, Ed, we are back in the forest. Yes, we are, and it's a lovely. It is a lovely day. It is a lovely summer day. There is a wind whispering through
1: the pines. You know, we say this every time we sit down, is it's a lovely day, and we're here in the piney woods, and blah, blah, well, blah, well, but... Sometimes
0: we complain about being cold. Right. And, you know. but I have cold. to
1: say... Living where we do, that when it's nice like this, it's remarkable. You it is to...
0: remarkably nice. And uh, today we're going to kind of follow up on our last conversation. I was fascinated by the um,
1: the whole the whole thing about the uh, Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible and how we got there and the the fact that there were other writings written between uh, Malachi mm-hmm. and the uh, Jesus and. I, I really I dug it I was I was explaining the whole thing to my wife I don't I don't know if she was interested or not did you manage to use the word deuterocanonical I did not. in a legitimate sentence no I didn't I only told her about it I already remembered it a couple of days ago <laughs> uh, and so yeah I couldn't fake out by just weasel out by just saying hey get a load of the deuterocanonical
0: well look uh, my, my, my offer still uh, stands if you can find a way to work deuterocanonical <laughs> into a legitimate sentence casual <laughs> sentence with your wife I will buy you a gas station pizza awesome Uh, Anyway,
1: but that left hanging the New Testament, which I learned did not have any different books in it between Protestant and Catholic. Correct. But it opens up a whole thing that for me that I've thought about for a long time, many years. And that is how did people get along in the first two or three or 400 years of Christianity? without a Bible to read in the morning with their coffee. Um, (laughs) And the other one was, I just assumed something I think now is kind of dumb that the, the Bible just everybody agreed on it and everybody was in on it. And everybody, these, these mystical men who made no mistakes and never did anything wrong. And God just spoke to them and said, and everybody so let's just put these books in the, this is, these are the books like a big finger came down from heaven and pointed. And, I never thought about it be, being assembled by men and that there being disagreements about it. Yeah. So it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. That, let me take those two questions you just asked in kind of reverse order. There is a, a kind of, I don't want to say doctrine because I don't, I don't think that any serious Christian of any kind, you know, or even semi-educated Christian of any kind believes this. But I think that sometimes we can sometimes act as if it's true. And that is that the Bible just sort of emerged in its final form, like just kind of always was, or at some point, you know, right after Jesus and Pentecost, there was this Bible and really that's treating the Bible to some degree as Muslims think of the Quran or Mormons think of the book of Mormon, you know, Muslim doctrine teaches that the Quran is this perfect holy book that was delivered in its perfect form as it is now, delivered by God to the prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Mormons have this doctrine that Joseph Smith was led by an angel to this hill in New York and he kind of just dug up these gold plates, and the Book of Mormon just, you know, kind of popped out as it is. The Bible emerged. Over time, uh, the Old Testament and then the New Testament, as I said in the last episode, if you take the, the combined Old and New Testament periods over about a 1,400-year uh, time frame right. from about 1300 B.C. to almost 100 A.D., that hundreds of these scrolls, teachings letters liturgical instructions moral laws all of these things by hundreds of authors and they were in a sense combed through and authenticated and assembled into something that we call the bible right and which is by the way just the greek word for book so biblos in greek is book Right. And so the Bible is simply the book. All of these individual components or of these, all of these things, some of them were assembled and made into the book. And we, last time we talked about how that happened for the Old Testament. Right. And this time we're going to talk about how that happened for the New Testament. But I do want to answer you the first question you just asked about, well, what did people do? And I know you're kind of being a little bit facetious, uh, just slightly. What did people do for three or 400 years, you know, if they couldn't get up in the morning with their morning coffee and read their, read their, their Bible over morning coffee? But, but it's actually an interesting question because the notion of individual people, individuals owning a copy of the Bible, you know, that wasn't even possible until only a few hundred years ago. So books of all kinds, any book was a handmade thing and very expensive. And then when in the 1500s, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, books became, you could mass produce books. But even then, like a complete Bible was a very expensive book. Might have cost, you know, the equivalent of hundreds of dollars today. So not every person maybe could afford one until, you know, the publishing industry and the printing industry and translations and all that really made that possible maybe a few couple hundred years ago or a few hundred years ago that an individual family could own a family Bible. Right. So if you think about the 2000 years of history of, of the Christian church, the notion of you having a family Bible, much less you having six or eight different Bibles laying around your house and one on your phone... Uh, really that's only of the last 2000 years, only the last two or 300 that you would have individual families owning a Bible. So the question is, is how then is the Bible read or understood for most of Christian history? And the answer is it was read in church as a part of the liturgy. Okay. Right. So you would go to church where there would be the, you know, the, the lector or the priest or the pastor or whatever, they would read the Bible or the court or the choir would sing the Psalms. And that's how you learned right. it for most of Christian history is you heard the Bible in church, uh, read to you taught on whatever you didn't have your own copy that you sit up and woke up every morning and read and had the words of Jesus printed in, in red ink and right. all this kind of thing. That's, You know, again, you get to this sort of historical ignorance or sort of our own sort of lack of awareness or self-awareness about our place in history. If you look at all the Christians who've ever lived over 2,000 years, you know, 20 centuries, 24 time zones, two hemispheres, blah, 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 every nation language, whatever, race, you know, the notion of us having the Bible and access to the Bible for sort of constant everyday listening or reading or whatever is really something that has occurred only in the developed world within the last one or 200 years. Right. So, you know, 90% of Christians who've ever lived the 90% of Christian history, pretty much you experienced the Bible, you heard it and were taught it at church. So because of that, you know, the Bible was something that was created in a sense and transmitted through the church, So let's talk about how the New Testament emerged. And for those of you who have not listened to the last episode, so we recorded that a week or two weeks ago, but it just released uh, this last episode, and that was called Catholic versus Protestant Bibles. And it's about how the Old Testament was put together. Today, we're going to talk about the New Testament. But before we jump to that, I want to make a couple of clarifications about a couple of points that I made in in that thing of the Old Testament. I stand by what I said, Uh, the narrative. What what I would just say is that it was a podcast where for 45 minutes we're sitting here kind of talking at at a podcast level. It wasn't intended to be an academic paper or whatnot, a graduate school paper or a book or whatever. And I've worked on all of those things when I was in Christian publishing. So I I was kind of hitting the highlights. But if you really, really wanted to get granular about the Septuagint Right, And the versions of the Septuagint and the different versions of the Septuagint that emerged in the years 250 to, you know, uh, BC to the year zero. And there, there were different versions of the Septuagint floating around in the century or two before Jesus. Um, and which books are included and how those books are counted. Um, and how they're labeled. I mean, you could just really get down to that. I just don't want to descend into that level of detail. Right. Right. But I listened to the episode and I was like, oh man, I can, my mind was thinking, <clears throat> I know there's people out here who know something about this and they're going to say, hey, you know, they're going to quibble with some points. I stand by the main points that I made in the basic narrative the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church. It is the Bible, the Old Testament of the Orthodox churches, the Greek Orthodox churches, right. which actually, you know, from a standpoint of history, you know, are the early churches of the, the Eastern Mediterranean world, you know, in Greek. And the Septuagint is the received and accepted Bible of the Eastern Orthodox. One of the thing is I also said that the Eastern Orthodox have the same number of 46 books in their Old Testament because they use a Septuagint. Uh, Another sort of clarification, they have the 46 books of the Septuagint that the Roman Catholics do, but they've got some parts and pieces of a couple of others uh, because there were a couple of versions of the Septuagint floating around at the time of Jesus. And they had some bits and pieces. I'm just going to say bits and pieces. Like first and second Maccabees had some extra uh, attachments about the Maccabees. There were like, there's a Psalm 151 in the Greek Orthodox Hmm. Old Testament, the Psalms. Some of that has to do with how they were counted, and where the divisions are. And this isn't a podcast about the Greek Orthodox Old Testament version of the Septuagint. I think what I just want to say is that for anybody who's knowledge about this, who wants to, you know, use the Google machine and go down this rabbit hole, the history of the Septuagint, how it emerges in the, the few centuries prior to Jesus and the apostles, which copies of it are and how they get established in the early Christian churches of the first century or two. Is an interesting history. It doesn't change my main point that the Septuagint was the Bible of the early, the Old Testament of the early church. Right. And it is the version of it that the early church accepted in the Orthodox and the Eastern Rite, Syriac churches, and in the Roman Catholic Church. The other thing about the Orthodox is that they make a distinction that we don't make in Roman Catholicism between. Uh, books that are canonical and books that are inspired in the old testament so in other words when you were asking about how the bible was used and i said that through most of history it was read in church so there are these extra little bits of the septuagint that in the greek orthodox churches are read as a part of the liturgy so like for example if you went to their version of a mass or a worship service there are some parts and pieces of the septuagint that are read in, as a part of their lectionary in worship that are not read in the Roman okay. Catholic Church. So this gets, like I said, we're now getting into really granular, ticky-tacky details that right. don't change the main point. The other thing I would say, just to clarify, as I listened to the last episode, is when we talked about w- what the Jews accepted as the Old Testament at the time of Jesus, and I made the point that most Jews living in the Roman Empire could not speak Hebrew. That's true. Most Jews living in the Roman Empire, yeah, they, they couldn't read or write Hebrew anymore than we as Catholics can read or write Latin. Right. It's the official language, and certainly their rabbis could, but the average Jewish person living somewhere in the Roman Empire used right. the Greek Septuagint. But the other point I wanted to make is that unlike, say, Catholicism or Orthodoxy, historic Christianity... The Jews at the time of Jesus, and still to this day, don't have a controlling authority to declare something canonical. So in other words, we, have a, yeah. we, can, we can say, well, we okay. have a pope or we have bishops and councils. And as I said in the last episode, in 385, they can meet in Rome and say, hey, you know, for the last 300 years, we've recognized these books. Right. And we're going to determine and write it down and sign the paper and seal it with a wax seal and say, right. this is the canonical scriptures. The Jews have never had that at the time of jesus judaism actually was a lot more like protestantism today it essentially had denominations so when you when you hear the stories about jesus and he talks about the pharisees and the sadducees and all that right. as an analogy these essentially were denominations the same right. way we have baptists and methodists and anglicans and right. you know catholics or whatever that there were different kind of denominations of jews and we they wouldn't have used that term but that's kind of the idea. And just as our denominations have different versions, like, you know, the Protestants have uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, right, right? Right, And we have, Catholics and Orthodox have 46. In the same way, different denominations of Jews had different versions of the Septuagint or different versions of the whole, of the Old Testament writings that, that they favored, right. you know, one denomination more than the other. So there wasn't at the time of Jesus, a Jewish Bible that was an official Jewish Bible that all Jews recognized, handed down by some sort of Jewish authority. There was no Mm -hmm. Jewish Pope. What there were were the Pharisees accepted these scrolls, the Sadducees accepted these scrolls, these that. And the important point from the last episode is that what emerged from all of that with Jesus as a rabbi and the apostles and the establishment of the church is the church recognizing the Septuagint as, in a sense, the the Old Testament of the early church, right? And the point that I made in the last episode is that when the Protestants came along and decided to use this thing called the Masoretic Hebrew text, that that actually, in their desire to go back to the Hebrew, what they were using was actually a Hebrew text that was put forward by certain he Jewish denominations right. after the time of Christ, where they picked and cho- chose. And right. so, for all intents and purposes, Roman Catholics. The Greek Orthodox churches, the Syric churches, all the ancient churches have recognized the Septuagint 46 books of the Old Testament yep. as the canon, and that's what the church has accepted, and that's where I stand. So, and that was a long point of clarification, but I wanted to make that clear. Right. Okay? Yep. So now let's talk about the New Testament. That, where did the New Testament come from, or at least how did it emerge? And I was thinking a lot about because I knew we were going to talk about this day, but how I wanted to explain it. So to explain it, I want to put three things on the table. Okay. So think of you know we've got a table here between us. It's right. a picnic table and kind of well, a, what is it like a? a hex- is it a hexagon or an octagon? No, it's a it's it's, hexagon. It's a hexagon. It's, yeah, six sides. So we are sitting around a hexagonal picnic table uh, here, and with the whistle- wind whistling around through the pines around us, and and I want to put three things on this table. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to put right over here, the great commission. Okay? okay. So let's start with the great commission thing one on the table. So a lot of Catholics don't recognize this term, the great Conic- or the, the great commission, because it's not that term is not used a lot in your average Catholic parish, but m- almost every Protestant or evangelical sure. the great commission. So it's the end of the book of the gospel of Matthew after the resurrection. Yep. And he tells the apostles, he gives them their commission, tells them what they're supposed to go do. Okay, he's raised from the dead, he's going to ascend to heaven, and this is their, their right. mission, their commission. And it, and it is to go into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right. and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. Right. That is the great commission. That's what the apostles were told to do. And then a little bit later, uh, right before he ascends into heaven, at the ascension, Luke uh, in Acts 1, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. The Holy mm-hmm. Spirit will be with you to the end. Now, what I want you to hear about that is what it does not say. Right. Jesus said, here's the plan. Go into all nations, make, making disciples, baptizing them in the name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. I'll be with you into the age. Here's what he doesn't say. Get together as soon as I ascend and write a book and then publish the book. And once you've published the book, I want you to distribute the book as widely as possible to the ends of the earth so that everybody has a copy of the book so that they can all read the book And learn about me and have a personal relationship with me through the book. Right. That was not the plan Jesus laid out. And yet, from the Protestant perspective, that's sort of the plan, is that Jesus commissioned the apostles to make a book, the New Testament. And the New Testament plus the Old Testament, which will then be published and distributed. And that's how people come to know Jesus. What Jesus said was, go into all nations, make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's what they were told to do. In fact, I can't find a place in the New Testament where Jesus instructs the apostles to write anything down. Right. Somebody write in and show me the verse where Jesus says, when I'm gone... I want you to write all of this down and assemble it into a written document and distribute it to the world. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's the first thing on the table. Okay. Second, that's at the end of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Then let's put on the table, the very end of the gospel of John. Okay, so Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels. We just talked about the last words in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's talk about the last words in the Gospel of John. And what John says at the very end is that if all of the things that Jesus said and did were written down, the world could not contain all of the books that it would take to, to do this. So let me tell you what I think that implies. John, beloved disciple, Yep. The disciple that Jesus gave his mother, you yep. know, be taken yep. care of, the disciple that Jesus dearly loved, last disciple to be alive, wrote the you know the book of Revelation. First words of his gospel are in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And right. then the last words of his gospel, if everything he said and did were written down, the world itself could not contain these books. So let me tell you what I think that means. It means that they had to <laughs> pick through all the things that he said and did right. and reduce them to one book about this long. Right. Cause right? Because if they wrote them all down, the world couldn't hold right. all the books. So there was a, a, for lack of a better word, an editorial process. Right. The apostles had to choose the things that they would write down or the things that they would transmit and and put that into some, you know, sort of succinct summary. Does this mean that there were then, at the time of the apostles,
1: things that they were teaching people and talking about that never made it into the Bible or thi- are, and are some of those things that, things that have been passed
0: down but not written down. Well, absolutely. I mean, right. just ask yourself the question. If you could, in a time machine, go back and spend a week with the apostle John after jesus's you know death and resurrection you know 20 30 years after that if you he was the apostle john lived in the city of ephesus if you could go back to S- ephesus and spend a, a week being discipled right. by the apostle john and he could tell you everything that he knew about jesus and tell you all the stories and give you all the insights i'm sure there's a lot he would have to tell you right and it would be fascinating and we'll get to this eventually here in this episode or, or maybe in the next one when we talk about the authority of scripture and the role of scripture and, and tradition, because it is the authority of the apostles, not the authority of the book. It, so let me put the third thing on the table. Okay? okay. First thing on the table is the Great Commission go into all nations, make disciples, baptize them, yep. and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Second, if everything Jesus said and did and commanded were written down, the world couldn't hold all the books. So we had to, you know, right. condense that down to some manageable amount right. third thing on the table i want to introduce a, a term it's a term in theology biblical studies not normally used and it's called it's the term is the received text received i had a i've had a couple of people write in uh, <laughs> write me emails saying that they don't understand my pronunciations or, or accent sometimes i don't know i think I explained to somebody, you know, my accent was shaped by growing up and being, you know, like a surfer in Huntington Beach, which I, I can right. point out to Ed. Uh, and so, uh, and then, then I moved around everywhere, and so my accent is muddled. But, uh, okay, so received, as in given, like when you receive something. So the received or the given text, the text that was given. So this term, the received text, is the notion of the the Bible in the final form that the church accepted it is what matters. So in other words, it's interesting to talk about all of the ways that the different books were edited and compiled and all that. And there's no doubt that that's interesting. Right. And there's no doubt that there's some value in studying that. But what it is saying is that in the end, it doesn't kind of matter because through the holy spirit we believe that the final form of the bible that the holy spirit not only worked through inspiring the guy who put the pen to paper or to papyrus right but it also worked through all the people who compiled those and sorted through those things and compiled the canon of scripture so the 46 books of the old testament and the thirty, the twenty-seven books of the New Testament, comprising right the seventy-three right. books of the Bible, that is the received text, which was a centuries-long uh, consensus. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that right? in a minute. Okay. okay, but the point is, is whenever that was, whenever the church said this is it, this is yep. the final form, that's what we are obedient to. So you can't sit there and say, well, it's interesting to speculate about various kind of ways that these letters and these gospels were composed and compiled and everything else. And the different versions that floated around what matters is the received text that when the church said the Holy spirit worked, not only through the writing process, but through the editorial and compilation process. Right. So that what we have is in a sense, the final form of the the Bible and it's 73 books, that is what's authoritative. Right. that's the written word of God. Those are the written scriptures. So let me give you a, f- a for instance for that. We'll get into a little bit here about how these books emerged. Um, there's, a, there's a theory. It can only be, you know, a theory because no one can prove it. But there is a theory among, in biblical studies, that there is a missing underlying document called the Q document. Oh, interesting. Okay? Now here's what the Q document would supposedly be. So Jesus during his three years of ministry is walking around, talking, giving yep. sermons, turning, you know, loaves and fishes to bread and doing all the miracles. Right. And there's people walking around, follow him around, apostles follow around. And let's suppose that some of them took notes. Sure. Now you can say, well, you know, some of them were educated, like Matthew, the tax collector, undoubtedly could read, right. write. So let's suppose that some of those people were following him around or are writing stuff down. Oh yeah, Jesus was up on the hill today and he gave this sermon on the mount today about, you know, blessed are the, you know, peacemakers or whatever. And they're like scribbling this stuff down and then they're putting them in their little travel bags or whatever, their little satchels. And they're walking around with all these assembled notes. Okay. That's, that's. That's reasonable, reasonable. Yeah. And that then after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and all this stuff, these notes that are passed around amongst the apostles and his followers, that people start to go, hey, you know, let's kind of start to go back to the notes. What was it that he said that day? And he said this and he said that, right? And so that there's this idea, just a theory, that there was this thing called the Q document, which was basically a series of notes. Of Jesus' sayings and actions that at least some of the gospel writers, it would have been floating around amongst them copies of it. And then when they sat down to write their gospel, they were like, okay, now what was it he said that one time? Let me go back and, and check use it as a reference. And use that as a reference. And then they wrote it down. Okay. That's interesting, right? right. But here's my thing about the received text. It's not the Q document That is finally the inspired scriptures so that if we could go, you know, you've got Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, but you know, if we could go only go back and find those original handwritten notes that were taken at the Sermon on the Mount, that would be closer to the source. But what we believe as Christians, we believe as a church, especially the Catholic church, is that the Holy Spirit worked through this process so the process of Jesus preaching, the process of whatever notes or recollections, the process of how the gospel writers consulted those, maybe they talked to each other, compared, you know, recollections, right. you know, compile those things and they're all assembled so that we end up with what we call the received text, the final version. Right. You know, like as a writer, if I went back and said, hey, look at all my early drafts. Right. The early drafts aren't what I turned in. The early drafts aren't what I gave to the publisher. Right. What what was published was the final version, and that's the official version.
1: Well, if you and I did that, if you and I got our hands on the Q document, it would just be... If I got my hands on it, it would just be me saying, well, this this part, I like this part, I don't like that part. Right. It wouldn't be hundreds of people over hundreds of years saying, this 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 part here... You know
0: I would try to distill it and I would surely distill it wrong well, well it's it, see part of it is is this attempt in biblical studies in the last hundred 200 years by people who fundamentally disbelieve in the Bible to deconstruct it so if we can kind of deconstruct it into its parts and, yep. and 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 figure out who wrote what and how it was written then, then in a sense we can get away from having to accept the final form and the point i want to make is that it's the final form that the holy spirit worked through the process so now i put these three things on the table the great yep. commission yep. that john's statement that you know the world can contain all the things that jesus said and did if they're all written right. down and then this notion of the received text now let's bring these three together okay the Apostles were not instructed to, as soon as I ascend into heaven, gather in the upper room and write everything down and and compile a book. And then what I want you to do is uh, make a lot of copies of the book, thousands, millions of copies of this book and distribute it because the book is the thing. The book is the point. The book is the official right way that people are supposed to know. Jesus, what they were told is go make disciples right and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. The disciples after Jesus rise say they get you know, as they get together or interact or are doing their ministries, they go, Wow, my job is to make disciples and baptize right. and instruct them to obey everything Jesus commanded. So I have to go back and and think about all the things that Jesus commanded and said, of which there were many, and then I need to condense those into some sort of a a form for my audience. Right. And in a sense, they wrote the gospels or they wrote the epistles in order to fulfill the commission of making disciples and instructing people. So the Bible serves the purpose of making disciples and instructing. In a sense, the Bible is the means to an end. Right. Now, for Protestants out there who are like, the Bible is everything. You go, you're going to think that I'm somehow diminishing the importance of scripture. I'm not. It is, it was the means to an end, but it was, it was a means to an end. The end wasn't just to make a book to make a book. The means was to make disciples and instruct them. And some of the apostles felt that one of the ways that they could most efficiently or effectively do that was to write some things down and send it to people. So let's take the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Only two of those gospels are written by named apostles. The The 12 apostles, you know, minus Judas replaced by... Uh, so Matthew and John Matthew the tax collector, John the beloved apostle Okay Two of the four gospels were written by Named apostles So, so what are the other two gospels? Well, uh, Mark Is believed to be by the early church Tradition of the early church uh, Was a companion Of the apostles, he wasn't an apostle himself He's not one of the twelve But he's generally understood to be The protege of Peter so he followed Peter around, yep. Peter was his mentor, whatever, Peter's protege. So what John Mark is doing in the gospel of Mark is, is to some degree, recording Peter's, is probably taking input from Peter and from the other apostles. Right. And the fact that John Mark was hanging around. So, for example, a lot of people think John Mark was the young man when Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, whose toga got yanked off and ran away into the night. Hmm. OK, so he was a companion of the apostles, but wasn't an apostle himself and undoubtedly was probably around during some of the things that Jesus said and did, knew the apostles and for whatever reason was literate. And he wrote this down, but we largely get a little bit of Peter's you know, influence through that. And then Luke wasn't an apostle at all. Luke was a Greek speaking doctor, a physician who was not one of the 12, was not around at the time of Jesus, and never met Jesus. But he was a convert who became intensely interested and he was highly educated. So he says in his gospel, I sought to document the things about Jesus. And so I went and spoke to eyewitnesses. He says that right in the Gospel of Luke at the very beginning. So what Luke did... Uh, the Greek speaking physician is he went to apostles. He went to other people and disciples who knew Jesus in many ways, people believe. And I think with good reason that he went to Mary. Yeah. That fascinated me that well, he, yeah, because how else, you know, that's where in Luke is right. where we get the details of the, you know, the annunciation and the nativity story and that he went to Mary and said, well, tell me what happened. And he interviewed eyewitnesses and then compiled this history. So the four Gospels, you can see even in them how complex the formation of Scripture was. If all of the apostles were charged with going out and making a book, then why did only two of the twelve go out and write a book? (laughs) Right, the others didn't write didn't write a book. James, you know, wrote a letter. Slackers, you know, but they didn't write books because they were not commissioned to write a book. They were commissioned to make disciples, baptize, establish churches teach people to uh, obey everything Jesus commanded. Some of them felt that writing some of this down and sending it to people helped advance their mission. Then you have the epistles in the New Testament. So these are the letters. So you have the, 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 the book of Acts, which is actually the second half of the gospel of Luke. So Luke also wrote Acts. And in fact, we know this because he says right in the first sentence, of the book of acts in my former letter oh, i documented yeah. all of the things that jesus said and did up through his crucifixion right resurrection and mm-hmm. now i want to talk about what happened after that and he describes the acts of the apostles right and you know the things that happened in the years uh after that establishment of the church and then you have the convert paul who was not one of the apostles of these. He was a persecutor who ends up going around traveling, establishing churches and writing letters to the churches that he established. Right. And the letters were there to clarify points that he had made in person when he right. showed up to preach to make disciples. Yep. and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Then he said, hey, some of you guys are messing this up. So, hey, you Corinthians, I was there last year, right. and I you know, preached and taught and did all this, and now you guys are forgetting everything, or you got points of doctrine that you're not clear on, right. or you guys are messing up. Let me write you a letter and send it over to clarify things. So, the New Testament is a collection of all of these letters, missiles, uh, epistles, n- uh, uh, stories, instructions, compiled, some by apostles, some by people who are adjacent to the apostles, to different audiences. So Matthew is generally understood as writing to Jewish Christians or Christians with a Jewish background because he kind of frames things in Matthew's gospel from a standpoint of that kind of speaks to the Jews, kind of at, at, whereas Luke seems to be speaking to uh, Greek converts mm-hmm. to, to Christianity because he tends to frame things, you know, in a way that makes sense to them. You have Mark, which is the shortest of the gospels, very punchy, bam, 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 which right. is just kind of a quick recollection mm-hmm. of the important events in Jesus's life. And then you have John, and John comes around and tells you why he's writing it. He says, "I have assembled these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ." Um, and is the Logos, and is the promised one, and he, and he says, like I've basically have picked and chosen the important things of Jesus's life that I think will be persuade you. Right. Again, then you have Luke attempting to document the history of the early churches in Acts. Then you have Paul and others writing letters to churches to clarify points of doctrine, right, or moral instruction. And then you have Revelation, which is the last of the books of the New Testament that was written. And that's the Apostle John, again, at the very end of his life, is given this vision or revelation about, you know, the last things. So, at the time, like, if you think all these things were written, so let's put it in this this frame. Jesus is born in the year 3 or 4 B.C., And he's crucified somewhere around the year 30. And I think the reason we're equivocating is that the Roman calendar converted our calendar. There's some squishiness in terms of the dates. But let's just say conventionally that he was born in the year 3 BC in our calendar and he was crucified, you know, buried and rose again around the year 30, Haiti. The earliest letters, gospels, and whatnot that are written start emerging in the 50s and the 60s, okay? Most of what we know as the New Testament is written in the 50s. There may have been some early letters floating around. There may have been this Q document. There may have been some other little like early letters where an apostle writes a letter to a church and says, hey, let me remind you of some things. And some of those we just don't have. They're lost to history. But most of the Bible is probably written in the 50s and the 60s. So let's put some uh, kind of reference on that. We're recording this in 2023, okay? So what happened 22 years ago? 9-11. So to give you sort of a reference about how long ago it must have felt yeah. like, you know, 9-11 was a really big deal. We all have memories of 9-11. Some of us can remember when we heard about it, there's, but there are eyewitnesses, Sure. right? We can go interview some of the eyewitnesses, the, the policemen, and the firemen that were at the towers and, right. you know, this and that. And those people, this is now about that same time. It's about 20, 25 years later. And their recollection, all of our recollection is still fresh. So in the same way, in the 50s and the 60s, you have people writing about Jesus's death and resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection, right. Pentecost, about the same amount of time after those events that 9-11 is, you know, in our rear mirror. Right. And it's a very fresh memory. And there's a lot of people that have, you know, uh, personal recollections and that's what the new testament is is this is this collection of stories and then instructions to people in those early years as the apostles try to fulfill the commission the great commission of making disciples and teaching them to obey everything jesus commanded and What matters, although it's interesting to think about where did somebody have, did Matthew have notes that he shared with the others? If Luke went around and did interviews with Mary and, you know, other people, where are Luke's notes? Uh, Where are the early drafts of his gospel? That's interesting, but it's not what's important. What's important is that last term I put on the table, the received text, the final version, that's the published version. The version that went to print, that the version that the Holy Spirit worked through that editorial process and the collection process, and that we believe is the final inspired New Testament. And so when you get into this textual criticism or textual history stuff, it's interesting. But what matters is that final version. So think about the people who are receiving these. So you have churches, Corinth and Rome and Ephesus and people around the ancient world and they're getting a handwritten copy of Matthew or they're getting a letter from Paul written to them. And then what they do is they get it, they treasure it, they read it in the church on Sunday because again, they can't like print it and publish it to everybody like the way that we would or put it on the website. Right. So they have a very expensive handwritten copy and then they have scribes make copies of the you know copies. So you have copies of copies So, you know, they get a letter from Paul and they make five copies of it. And they send those five copies out to other churches who make five copies, who make five copies. And within a very short amount of time, I mean, within five, 10, 50 years, you have hundreds and hundreds of copies of the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John, hundreds of copies of Paul's letter to the Romans or his letter to the Corinthians that, that by the year 100, there are you know, AD there's literally hundreds and hundreds of copies of this floating around these right. letters floating around. Now the question is all of these churches have these. And again, they can't distribute into individuals because it's too expensive right. to produce that. So they're read in church or they're read in the liturgy. They're, they're read by the bishops. They're used for teaching. They're very expensive documents. And after a while, what happens is the bishops and the leaders of the church look at all of these things that are flowing around and go which ones do we think are authentic? And they begin to apply some criteria for which ones they think are inspired and authentic and should be included in the canon. And one of the criteria that they applied to the New Testament documents was is this written by an apostle or by somebody with only one degree of separation from an apostle. So for example, as a minute ago, I was explaining the Gospel of Mark, Mark wasn't an apostle, right? but he got his information from Peter, right uh, Luke wasn't an apostle, but he interviewed the apostles as direct eyewitnesses and right. interviewed Mary. Um, the letters to the churches were written by apostles, you know Paul, right. Peter's, you know, epistles, whatever James, John. These are written by apostles. Now, I can tell you, there were a lot of other letters floating around in the year 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, from Christian leaders. And some of those almost made it into the New Testament canon because they were valuable writers. And I'll give you an example. One of them was something called uh, Clement, the first uh, Clement 1 and 2. Like, you know, we have 1 Corinthians, right. 2 Corinthians, First and Second Clement. Who's Clement? Well, Clement was the, I always get this confused, third or fourth Pope, Bishop of Rome. So you had okay. Peter, and then the next guy after Peter was I think Linus, right. and there was another guy, and then there was Clement. And that, isn't, that wasn't very long because the life expectancy of Popes after Peter was like three years. Right. He became Pope, right. and because the Romans were, you know, persecuting when they're hiding in the catacombs, right. putting them to death, you'd, be, you'd have the Bishop of Rome would last three or four e- years and get, you know, martyred right so within 15 20 years of peter and paul dying the bishop of rome is a guy named clement and he writes letters two letters back to the church in corinth so paul wrote first and corinthian second yeah. corinthians where he writes letters to corinth and said you guys keep screwing up and doing right. all this crazy stuff and here's the instruction so what happens is the guy who's like 10 or 12 years after Peter's the Bishop of Rome writes back to the Corinthians and goes, you guys keep messing up. Right. And this is around the year, like 90. And he's like, guys, and he makes clear all these things about Christian moral instruction and doctrine and everything else. And what's interesting, by the way, is he says, I, as the successor of Peter tell you X, Y, Z. So at the time that you get around the year 100, Christians are starting to go, well, which of all of these letters and gospels and documents that are floating around and of which there are hundreds of copies, which of these are the canon, which is the New Testament? And they apply these criteria. And like I said, one of the criteria was it written by an apostle or somebody one removed from an apostle and was it consistent with the doctrines and instructions of the apostles because the apostles were commissioned to preach and teach rightly. So so any uh, document that was floating around that seemed to contradict the teachings of the known teachings of the apostles was eliminated as a possibility from the canon. Right. So it had to be by an apostle or somebody, one removed and consistent with the teachings, the known teachings of them. Right. And so for that reason, Clement was, first and second letter of Clement to the Corinthians was not included in the canon as were a couple of other documents like that flowing around the early world, early Christian world, not because they were bad or heretical, but because Clement was, because he was the fourth Pope, It right. was three right. degrees of separation from Peter. So it wasn't canonical, although it's very interesting to read first and second Clement, not as canonical scripture, but just as a, a very early and authentic Christian writing that gives a, 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 a mind into the early church and the teachings of the early church. There were a couple of other, like the Didache and a couple other documents floating around in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There were also some fake things. Like in the 100s and 200s, all of these fake gospels emerged. There's this one called the Gospel of Thomas which is this clearly fake thing that emerges, like it's probably written 150 years after Jesus. And and it's full of weird stuff where like Jesus, uh, he has these stories where like uh, he kills a sparrow, like he throws a rock or something at a sparrow when he's a kid and the sparrow dies and he feels super bad. So he resurrects the sparrow. I mean, like right. really crazy stuff like that. And people- you know, And there were people reading this stuff because they were essentially because they were heretics and they liked this. Uh, but the early church said, no, 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 no. And what happens is there's this consensus that emerges. Now you keep saying over hundreds of years. What I would say is by the year 100. Hmm. Okay, so again, now Jesus was crucified in the year 30. The last of the apostles, John, probably writes Revelation around the 85 to 90. Okay? Yep. And and so within 60-70 years, within basically a lifetime after Jesus' resurrection. So people who were kids at the time of the apostles, right. By the time people who were children who had sat under the feet of the apostles were grown-ups. Yep. There's a consensus about which books or which documents, okay. New Testament documents are authentic. And we can go back and see lists of them and they're quoting them and they're saying, Hey, you know, as Paul says, or as Peter says, or as Matthew says, and there's this consensus and uh, about that these 27. Now there are arguments about some marginal cases. Like I said, that first and second letter of Clement, there was another thing that was floating around called the shepherd of Hermas, which is talks all about Jesus as like a good shepherd or whatever that was written by an early Christian writer. But these things are, you know, they're respected, but they're not considered scripture. And the twenty seven documents that we consider in the New Testament, within about a year, you know, like I said, by the time that somebody who was a kid who sat under Peter and Paul, by that time that kid was an old man, the the canon in the New Testament was pretty much agreed to. What they didn't have at that time was a council to sit down and write it all down and, and declare it as official because they were living under pers- the persecution of the Romans. Okay. So there's a consensus as the bishops and the Christians in the churches, of the ancient world, write up, write letters to each other and go, yeah, you know, as Matthew says, or as, as Luke says, or as Paul says, and we recognize these and we don't recognize these and all that in 385 the Pope, now the Roman empire is converted to Christianity. Yeah. And now the Pope is able to assemble all the bishops of the world and have them say, now let's once and for all, you know, declare and put it in ink that right. these 27 documents are the new Testament and these 46 are the old Testament. And, and that happens. But what they're doing is basically acknowledging what had been known for 285 years before that. So the important thing in my mind, and I'll go back to what I said in the last episode, the important thing here is what is the received text? It is the church of the apostles that gives us the scriptures, not, as Protestants think, the uh, scriptures that give us the church. Right. Which is in a very,
1: at the very beginning of you uh, working on me here. In the very first long text exchange we had, that's what you said. That, uh, the church made the Bible, not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, I think you already sort of, like, I felt like, like that was already a fatal blow when you. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: it was for me. I mean, when I began to convert to Catholicism, I mean, because as a, as a Protestant, as an evangelical, as somebody, you know, who had been trained as a seminary trained as a Calvinist, you know, Bible guy to me the canon of scripture and the authority of scripture was central so once you kind of like pulled that piece out of the jenga pile right the whole thing sort of fell down yeah so anyway uh as, it, this is similar to the last episode where i go you know you can take classes and courses and spend years diving into all of the history of the documents. Oh, one other thing that I just want to say is people will say, well, do we have any of those early copies floating around? You know, when I said that, you know, the Romans or Corinthians right. or Gotham, they, they sent a copy and then the, you know, they made five copies. And then each of those copies had five copies. Do we have any of that? Cause you hear all this sometimes from critics that we don't have an, the early original, we don't have an original version of the Bible. And what I want to argue is that in a sense, there isn't an original single book there were all right. these documents right what we have is we don't have any documents really from the first century of ancient Rome because they were written on media they are written okay. on parchment perishable perishable stuff yeah. uh, they're just they just aren't paper documents right. that are 2,000 years old so we don't have any original copies of Caesar's You know, stuff, right? right? But what we do have those copies of copies of copies of copies made, right? We can trace them back to fragments that were written on parchment and maybe pieces that were stored in locations that had low humidity, like in Syria or, you know, their desert locations. And what we can find is not an entire copy of something, but pieces, right? Here's a page, here's a fragment of a page. And the earliest copies that we have this stuff go back to around the year 100. Okay. Now they're fragments. Yep. Um, There's a couple that claim that like this fragment, it might be just half a page or something uh, goes all the way back to is that this piece of paper is, you know, dates back to the years 80, 90, you know, it's hard to date those things with accuracy. It doesn't say on the top, here's the date, but you're trying to use, you know, scientific techniques to date them. But what's interesting is all of those fragments are accurate. So in other words, if you take the copy of the Bible that you have today, the right. book, Paul's letter to the Romans, right, and you compare it to a fragment of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans that was found in some dry climate in Syria or right. something from the year 110, they match. Yeah. So there was a remarkable capacity, not only of the hum- on the human side to, to preserve right. that accurately, but for the Holy Spirit to preserve it so that we have a trust that the, doc- the documents that we have are accurate representations of those documents that are floating around in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s yeah. and the 80s of the first century. Good stuff, Greg. Thank you, Ed. I I hope that answered your questions. For you listeners out there who are interested in the history of the scriptures and all of the document history and the dates and the versions of them and translations of them, again, this is something you can go get a master's degree in and you can find 10 gazillion sources on the internet. But we just wanted to give you sort of a, a big picture overview. Great. Thanks. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith, And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.